tonight, this is the last week in this series that we've been doing, this idea of woven, looking at these themes that are woven from page one to the very end, the last page. And so what I want to do tonight, we'll, we'll kind of see how it works. I don't know. Is, um, as we're going, I, I would love to get thoughts, comments, questions, and then I would like to take even like the last five, ten minutes of this evening and, and kind of interact. I wish this were more of a small classroom setting. I've said that before. I wish that we could have that sort of setting here. Um, but I would love to just kind of answer and really about any of these weeks. You know, we've talked about heaven and earth and these two, you know, this concept. We've talked about the idea of holiness, of law, of, of, of covenants. So really, any, any topic is fair game as we go. So please feel free to shoot those in as we go. And kind of what I'm hoping for tonight is that this is kind of a, a wrap-up. Uh, one of the things that I was having a conversation with, with um, someone about this series, and they were making the comment that, they said, it seems like there's a lot of uh, overlap, like that um, we talk about one topic and then the next week we're talking about something different, but we see those threads kind of running over on top of each other, which is very astute. That's very accurate. We, as we talk about any theme or concept or idea, there's this integrated sort of woven uh, nature to all of, all of these themes as we go. And so tonight is kind of a... Let's try to wrap all of those themes up into kind of one big macro concept that I think holds all of the others inside of them. And, uh, and like I said, that's why I thought it might be kind of fun to have the uh, interaction and the questions and that sort of thing. Um, very last thing before we get started, some schedule things coming up here. Uh, next week, we're going to have kind of a special emphasis on this idea of what, um, what does it mean to be the kingdom of God people kind of in a local uh, community fashion, very practically oriented. What does it mean to be the kingdom of God, to be Christ's people in our, literally in our own community? And so kind of a special focus next week. The week after that, and this is in your bulletin, the schedule there. The week after that is spring break for PSD. And so we're following our, our youth and our kids department, and they take off. They give their volunteers a break. A lot, of, a lot of people are traveling. Kids are traveling and that sort of thing. So we won't meet that week. The week after that, we won't meet on, meet on Wednesday, but I uh, would like to invite you to join us on Friday of that week. That Friday, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday, which is the day that leads into, of course, the Easter celebration. And so we'd love to have you. We'll be meeting in our main auditorium just right across the hallway over there at 630 on that Friday evening. And so I hope that you will be a part of that as well. Um, I think those are all the issues and questions I have. Let me do this. Um, another thing I want to do is I said I want to try to address questions that come in from previous weeks. Again, this time we'll do it at the end. But I had two questions from last week that, that I wanted to address or bring some clarity to and things like that. One of the questions that came in, um, last week we, we were talking about Messiah. And remember we said that Messiah, this is concept, he's this snake crusher, snake crushing king. And that's set up from the very beginning on page three. And we see this concept of the Messiah developed. As we go, and we spend a little bit of time at the front talking about this idea of who is the snake. There's not a lot of context given to him in Genesis. It's just he's there. He's a creature of God, but he's in rebellion against God. And he's trying to draw others into, into that. And, and then we looked at these different 
titles that are given devil, uh, Satan, you know, adversary, accuser, the evil one, uh, all these different titles. And one of the questions that came in was, um, are, are all these various titles used in scripture, devil, Satan, evil one, serpent? So if they're talking about just a single being or are they talking about multiple beings? Um, Revelation 12.9 is a passage that I think kind of addresses that. If Revelation 12.9 draws all of those names together, referring to one being, the Satan, the adversary, the devil, this one, this ancient serpent of old, when it's, it's spoken of him, this final judgment being thrown down. Now, having said that, this one being, don't, you don't want to get the idea that he's somehow like omnipresent, like he's present everywhere as though he has God's qualities. But the idea that he has apparently many, you know, minions of other fallen uh, angels as well who interact. But what we said last week, it's always important to understand that these are creatures, mere creatures in rebellion against God. And then um, a, a second question came in. This is a little bit thornier one. I, I'll try to answer shortly. This is sort of a big one. It said, if Lucifer turned against God and so many other angels followed, does that mean angels now in heaven, like unfallen angels, could still be rebelling continually? Do they have free will? The answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I'm serious. Uh, I haven't been there yet. Uh, The Bible doesn't address that. The Bible is strangely vague about the spiritual world apart from God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And I think for good reason. Because it tells us the spiritual world is very real. It's very powerful. And there's a danger for a person, you see this all throughout Scripture, to try to engage or connect with the spiritual world in any doorway except the doorway of the Holy Spirit. Because they're extremely intelligent, malevolent, meaning evil personal spirits, um, who are bent on the destruction of God's creation. We see that in the page three of the Bible. And so there's a warning, not because he's holding anything back. Of course, that's the, <laughs> the lie that's sold to Adam and Eve. But there's a warning because it's very dangerous and it can destroy you. And so scripture, I think, is intentionally vague. And it says... There's, there's millions of evil spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. If you're randomly knocking on a door, your chances are one in a million. Enter through the Holy Spirit. Um, so I don't, I don't know about those sorts of things. There's, there's what we could call uh, sanctified speculation. You know, what's, what's going on. And if you, there's, there's a long answer I can give you. If this was your answer, come talk to me afterwards. There's an uh, early church father who actually had a pretty good thought about this. So if you're interested... Come talk to me afterwards and we'll wrestle through whether or not angels are still falling. Interesting thought. Um, okay. In the series, looking at these, these topics, I want to ask you a question as we get into tonight. Imagine that you got into a time machine, you went back in time, and you're first century Judea. Okay, modern day Palestine, you're living in that area. And Jesus is around and he's teaching and each day he's in different places. He's in hillsides and he's, he's in homes and he's teaching. If, if you were to stumble upon Jesus teaching, maybe track him all throughout the day. What's what do you think you would hear him talking about more predominantly than anything else? Um, I asked a couple people earlier and they said, well, I think I think I would hear him talking about love your neighbor. You know, that seems to be kind of a key thing or or uh, love your enemies, maybe, or the idea of uh, forgiveness 
the golden rule, do not worry about tomorrow. These are all very memorable statements that Jesus made, comments that he talked about. But what's interesting is when, when the eyewitnesses, these, these guys who kind of put this, what eventually came the Gospels, when they wanted to sum up the most predominant message that Jesus had any given day you'd stumble across him, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels, the ones that are very parallel in, in their structure, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all said the exact same thing. And they start by saying this, repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived. They all say the exact same thing. That what Jesus talked about more than anything else is this kingdom of God idea. Now, the idea of repent, let me paraphrase it for you. I think how they would have heard this idea in their mind is repent would have been, listen up. You need to respond. Listen up. You need to respond. The kingdom of God has arrived. That's how the eyewitnesses, how his closest followers summed up. What was Jesus all about? Like, what's his core? He said tons of things. The end of the Gospel of John, he says, I suppose if we wrote down everything, Jesus said, not all the books in the world could contain it. (laughs) So Jesus said tons of stuff. But distill it for me. Boil it down. And they did that. They said it was about this thing called the kingdom of God. Um, N.T. Wright, he's a a New Testament scholar. Um, he, He wrote a book called Simply Christian. And in it, he was, he was kind of talking about this dominant theme of kingdom of God sort of stuff and saying, you know, what, what really was Jesus' message? What was his primary idea? And, and uh, Wright said, there are four misconceptions that, that are really, really common in the church. And so these, these, these are his thoughts. He said, the first is that Jesus' core message, you know, is one of these four things, and he's arguing that it's not. He says, first of all, what Christianity is not about, it's not about new moral teaching. As, as though uh, we're kind of simply morally clueless and we just kind of need a little bit more clarity. We need kind of a higher bar on, um, on how to live or better guidelines on, on morality. Now, this is not to say that Jesus and some of his apprentices didn't have some wonderfully brilliant Uh, intellectually astute observations about the nature of morality and the human heart and all those sorts of things. Absolutely. absolutely. But, But all of that teaching, all of his moral teaching, came within a broader context of something else, something much, much bigger. Number two... Um, N.T. Wright says, Christianity is not about Jesus offering a wonderful moral example. Again, as though we just kind of needed to see an example of Jesus being utterly devoted to the Father, Father, completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit, in order that we could kind of uh, model after him or mimic him or copy him in some way. Now again, this is not to say that people's lives, even who aren't Christians, haven't been shaped by thinking about reflecting on this this Jesus guy. I mean, um, Gandhi is a man who would have rejected Jesus' self-definition as the Son of God, but yet he said, there's something there. I want to model myself after him. Here's the problem with these first two. Anytime you take these first two as sort of like, yeah, I think this is what Jesus was really about, is that if, if it's just about raising the moral bar... I don't know about you guys, but that simply leads me into greater despair. Right? Think about this. 
how, how good of a job have, have we done at following good moral rules like from you know, guys like Confucius or Aristotle? How well have societies done? Not that great. So if all Jesus does is he comes and he raises the bar up higher, hey, jump over that. Are you kidding me? He just leads me in greater despair. If that's all he is as a moral teacher and they're better morals, higher morals, I'm just failing that much more. Because I couldn't even hold up or uh, make the, the other ones happen very well. Um, let me give you a third one here that Wright mentions. He says, Christianity is not about... Now listen carefully to this one. Because this is probably the most common one. But hear what he's saying. He's not, not saying what... You might recoil and be scared at what he's saying. Um, he says, Jesus, it's not primarily about Jesus offering a new route by which people might go to heaven when they die. This is a common mistake of emphasis, is what he's talking about here. This comes, he argues, from this medieval notion that the point of religion... The point of Christianity is to make sure that you end up on the right side of the stage when the play is over. Or that you end up on the right side of the painting of the Sistine Chapel when it's all done, the heaven or the hell. This is not to deny that both our beliefs and our actions have eternal consequences. They certainly do. Scripture is very clear about that. But it's to deny that Jesus made this where you end up. The focus of his work and the point of Christianity as though, meaning the emphasis, it's all about us getting out of here. It's all about us just leaving this and ending up in some sort of ethereal place. That's that's not the focus, he says. And then finally, the fourth thing, fourth thing that writes is that people miss about what was Jesus all about message. He says Christianity is not about giving the world a fresh teaching about God himself, meaning doctrine. Let's get a better picture, a better view of God, as though our problem, again, is, is ignorance. And we just needed more information. We need a clearer, clear picture. Now, again, clearly, if Christianity is true, we do, we do indeed learn a whole, whole lot about the nature of God by looking at the person of Jesus that's claimed throughout the New Testament. But as, as Wright kind of ends up in saying, he says... The need that we have and that we get through Christianity, what Jesus was all about, it's not so much that we're ignorant. It's not so much that we're uninformed or we need a higher moral bar to get over. But he says it's the idea that we're lost and we need someone to come find us. We're stuck in quicksand and we're waiting to be rescued. We're dying and we need new life. And he puts it this way. His words are beautiful. So let me just read, read a couple words here to you. Before we move on, he says this. So what is Christianity all about then? He's asking the question. He says Christianity is about the belief that the living God in fulfillment of all of his promises. Remember, we talked about the covenants and all that stuff. And as the climax of the story of Israel, that God has actually accomplished it all. The finding, the saving, the giving of new life. In this person of Jesus. That Jesus accomplished all of that. He has done it. With Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into effect once and for all. A great door has swung open in the cosmos, which can never be shut again. It's the door to the prison where we've been kept chained up. We are offered freedom. 
Freedom to experience God's rescue for ourselves. To go through the open door and explore the new world to which we, and this is the key part, now have access. Jesus says a lot about the kingdom of God is available to you now at this, at this moment. In particular, we are invited, summoned actually, he says, to discover that through following Jesus, that this new world is indeed a place of justice, spirituality, relationship, beauty, and that we are not only to enjoy it as such, but to work at bringing it to birth on earth as it is in heaven. In listening to Jesus, we discover whose voice it is that has echoed around the hearts and minds of the human race all along. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God is simply as possible. It's an announcement that God has done something that is the climax of all history in the person of Jesus. That, that, that he's brought his kingdom, his reign, his rule in a way that has never fully been before in the person of Jesus. And everything that's come before it were road signs pointing to a person. Pointing to the person of Jesus. All of that, everything he said, is wrapped up in this idea of kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. That what, what Jesus talked about more than anywhere else. The kingdom of God. See, every, every culture, ours included, uh, has what's called a grand narrative. Grand narrative is like cultural values, things that w- way we explain life and how we see life going and where we're going and where we came from and all that sort of thing. Uh, America's grand narrative, you know, I would suggest would be progress. Scientific progress, uh, technological progress, uh, financial progress, even moral progress that's that's maybe a grand narrative to to the west anyway that was not jesus's grand narrative jesus's grand narrative was one of covenants and and these prophets coming speaking about a time when god would restore his kingdom for those of us in the west the idea of king i don't know about you guys but like king kingdom I mean, movies are like my only reference to it. I don't, I don't live that. You know, our, my grand narrative is influenced by, you know, democracy. Uh, it's, it's not this idea. So this can feel like archaic. It can feel uh, remote and hard to fully grasp. Um, so if we want to understand Jesus, here's what I would suggest. If we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand who he sees himself as and learn what he means by kingdom of God, if this really is kind of core to who he was. Now, if, if you open up an English dictionary and you crack it to the E's, uh, or, or excuse me, you crack it to the K's, kingdom, what you're going to find is that the definition is going to primarily refer to a geographical location, like a physical location. That's going to be really the prime or primary emphasis. Um, it's not true in the Bible. Um, the, the words in the Bible, in, in Greek, it's uh, a basileia, ah, basileia, in Hebrew it's malkut. It refers primarily to an activity. Now, it, it assumes a place, but its primary focus in the Bible refers to an action or an activity, something that is happening, actively happening, not just geographical boundaries. Um, the closest word in English is probably the idea of reign, ruling or, or reigning. We use that sort of 
language here. And so oftentimes people will translate the kingdom of God as the, the rule of God. And kingdom first came to us, you know, it's, it's in our King James. Uh, Tyndale used it even before King James. But because of where we've come in the West, we think of kingdom as sort of you know, like Christendom, sort of a geographical location in a place. Um, sometimes as you read the New Testament, it'll say kingdom of heaven. These are synonyms. They're just absolute synonyms. Remember week one, we talked about uh, heaven and earth, the sort of the spheres. Heaven is where God is. Humanity is sort of our realm and this idea of them overlapping realms, but sin breaking that apart and God moving them back together. Heaven in the Jewish mind can be used as almost a synonym for God because that's God's realm. Um, the closest thing in English would be like if, if I said, um, the White House made a statement today. Well, it didn't suddenly develop a mouth and start talking. I mean, it's, it's clearly, no, what I'm referring to is who's there, who's ruling that. So to refer to heaven is simply to refer to God. So heaven isn't just a place, it's primarily a person. It's this multi-personal God. Um, and so... Here's the very interesting thing as we get into the story. I want to kind of trace some of this stuff throughout. Very interesting thing about God's kingdom. And this is really, really neat. You go back to page one when we look at at this story. God's desire in all of his creation, all of the cosmos, is to share his rule with human image bearers. Which is really, really a radical thing. Um, when you think through the stories in the Bible, okay, think about different stories that you might know about where God is actively doing something, or you know, miracles or things like that happening. When you think through the stories of the Bible, there are actually very few times when, when God acts or does something and it's not through a human being. Think about, think about the Exodus. Okay? The Israelites are in Egypt. Imagine if you were there. Okay. Imagine if you're there and you're watching the parting of the Red Sea. Um, what would you see? Well, you would see Moses standing above it. You would see him holding out his staff as God parts these waters. The way that the God of the Bible works is through these image-bearing human beings, which is so fascinating. And he sets that up in page 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let me, let me read you this passage. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, and here's the royal word that he uses, so that they may rule over, or sometimes you translate it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, livestock, basically everything that's there. Um, it says, and so God created mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Um, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. And then there's another royal term there, uh, subdue it. And again, we said this earlier. What that means is you are to utilize everything that's at your ability to. The world's beautiful and it's wonderful as it is, but it can be even better. And so I want you to bring beauty and goodness. Uses the word cultivate. I want you to be gardeners. I want you to build and design and create culture from this world this is depicting humans as having a a royal task if you go to the book of psalms which is the prayer book of of the hebrew people psalm chapter 8 is this poetic reflection on genesis 1 psalm chapter 8 the author says 
What is mankind that you are mindful of him? Human beings that, that, that you give any sort of thought to them. What are you saying is, you know, Genesis 1 says we're dirt. I mean, you took the dirt of the ground. There's a, there's a lowness to us. We're, we're, we're animals in the sense of we share bodies with, you know, creatures and all these other animal creatures and that sort of thing. And so he's recognizing the lowness of it. But then he goes on to say, and yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. There's also this transcendent nature to it. And he goes on and then and he ends by saying, you have made them rulers over the works of your hand. So he's going back to that. There's this lowness to us. There's this transcendent majesty to us. But you have made us rulers of your stuff. You created us in order. You want to rule your world, but you want to do it through us. You brought us here to be the agents of your kingdom, which is a pretty huge thing. Um, Genesis, when God speaks, he makes these people. He gives them this unique role, speaks of the image of God. Um, and the image of God's really interesting. This word image is the exact same word that's used of idols in Israel's history. You know, he tells them, don't make images of me. And yet on page one, he makes an image bearer of himself to, to rule. He's using that exact same. You are to be a reflection of who I am, that I'm going to accomplish many of my tasks through you, this royal people that I have created. Um, most of the large statues that, that exist today from the ancient Near East, they're, they're kings and they're gods. Only those two, pretty much. Um, that's what a king, and a king, if you were in Egyptian culture, Babylonian culture, Assyrian culture, kings thought of themselves as sons of God or you know, divine. Um, not the, you know, the rabble, the average person wasn't all, but they were unique. And so they would make an image of themselves and put it where they ruled as, as a symbol of this is, this is his activity going on. And that's the idea that God talks about when he talks about you. As he says, you're like that image bearer that I've put into the place where I want my activity happening, where I want reigning happening. And what's so unique is, and this is totally unique, is that this role of image bearers is given to every single human creature. Every creature that's, that is human is called image of God. And this is totally unique in history. You go to the Greeks and it's not that way. Aristotle, as enlightened as he was, said there were certain people which are made for lower conditions. If you go to the east and there's the caste system, it's very clear there are different levels of people. You go to Egypt, ancient Egypt, there are different levels of people. Even in modern secular west, you know, as much as you say, oh, we're very egalitarian. Well, not necessarily. In the West, a human has value so long as they're in a certain location. So long as they're outside of a womb, they have value, they're protected, they have dignity. But if they're in a certain location, they don't. This, is, this cuts across every culture, West, East, it doesn't matter. Ancient, modern, the image of God is such a key component to us doing this kingdom of God thing. That's why we're spending a little bit of time talking about it. It's totally unique. This is why, in fact, if you go to Genesis 9 after the flood and Noah and his family are there, this is why God points out, he says, now anyone who sheds blood of an image bearer, their blood will be required of them. Why? Because this is a sacred creature. Something so unique and sacred about a human being, no matter what condition they're in, no matter what, doesn't matter. 
it's an image bearer. And so there's a sacredness to it. There's a holiness to it. Again, unique to the biblical framework. Now, if you were to read Genesis 1 and 2, image of God and all these sorts of things, and I want you to rule and reign, and you're my rulers, you're my viceroys in this world, and all that sort of thing. And then you jump to Matthew, where Jesus says, uh, repent, pay attention, listen, you need to respond, because the kingdom of God is, has arrived. Um, wouldn't you wonder, like, what happened to the kingdom of God? Right. I mean, there's this radical change between page one and two, and then all of a sudden, what, what happened to it? What happened is basically that humanity has set up an alternate kingdom. What happened in the original sin is that humanity said, I want my own kingdom. And each one of us has that very thing. Uh, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, he's passed away just a few years ago. He talked about this idea that he says, our bodies are our tiny little kingdoms. Our bodies, to the degree that we have control of them, are the places that we can carry out our sovereign will. And so these are these tiny kingdoms that we have turned in rebellion away from God and said, I'm going to set up my, my own kingdom. <clears throat> we as a family, we were watching the... Uh, Movie series, just almost every year we, we watch the Lord of the Rings series. I think they're great. They're just fun. And kids get freaked out of Gollum and all these creatures and all this stuff. But they have fun. But one of the things that always strikes me about it is the role that Tolkien has the ring play, if you, if you know the story. Anytime someone gets the ring, it amplifies the desire for self-rule and they, they start going about their little kingdom. doesn't matter if it's an actual king or if it's a lowly hobbit. The tendency is that the ring makes them say, I'm going to do, and whoever gets it happens to every single time, my kingdom. Right. Even, if it's, even if it's me crawling away and living in the mountains, my kingdom. And no one breaks it. No one crosses it. And Tolkien was onto something about the human nature, about the fall, is that we're made with these wills. And God calls them into service to him. But the nature of sin is to say, I'm running my own show, baby, even if it's just me and my house. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of sin. I'm going to define myself and I'm going to rule. I will have places that I have fences around in my life that only I have. There's no trespassing. That's really the nature of sin. So what does God do? He's got a world of creatures who have rebelled and set up their own tiny little kingdoms. Some of them get together and make little larger kingdoms, but it's just every one of their own little kingdom. What does God do? And a pattern emerges. Let me give you these three patterns, and you'll see them run all throughout Scripture. There are three pieces of the pattern. One, God confronts the evil. Number two, he liberates or calls them out of it. And number three, he invites them to live in an alternate kingdom. He confronts the evil, he liberates them or calls them out, and then he invites them to live in an alternate community, a community that is contrasted to all other models of kingdom, <laughs> every other kind that's out there, to contrast the rest of the kingdoms of the world. So how did he do that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, remember we talked about covenants? What did God do? He picked one guy in Genesis chapter 12, this one guy, Abraham, and he, he, tells, uh, he calls him and his family, tells him he wants, to live, he wants him to live a part of a different kind of kingdom, God's. And so many, many years in the future, his descendants are in slavery in Egypt. And God rescues them. He calls them 
to another way of living. He gives them a covenant. He says, this is the way I want you to live in the midst of all this culture. And so Pharaoh, for all the rest of the story, and, and it's, it's set up here, Pharaoh becomes um, the, the icon for the kingdom of this world. He becomes the icon of the kingdom that we set up where I say, I'm going to rule and I'm going to determine all things. Later, uh, Babylon becomes, the, becomes sort of the icon. That's why in Revelation um, we see these, you know, the seven plagues and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. It's, it's basically the ten plagues mixed up in a blender. I mean, it's, it's, it's reliving Exodus again. It's saying this is the nature of kingdoms who try to grasp the ring and, and say, I'm going to do it my own way. It's retelling Exodus. And so defeating these icons of the human kingdom in rebellion against God's rule um, as we said earlier, Pharaoh kind of typifies sinful human kingdom. What, is, what does Pharaoh care about? Well, he cares about uh, national security. He cares about the economy. And those two things are ultimate. Meaning anything justifies those two things. If those two things are your ultimate, you'll do anything. For instance, enslave a people, kill their children, whatever it takes to build up your storehouses and to make yourself secure. That's the nature of this little kingdom thing in rebellion against God. So what does God do? Well, think of the pattern. God challenges the first national superpower of Pharaoh in Egypt. And the gloves come off. The ten plagues happen. And God destroys Pharaoh and his armies in the water. And we have the very first worship song in the Bible. Um, Exodus chapter 15 this has just happened, and there's this beautiful poetic worship song. It's also, a little bit of trivia here for you, it's the first time that the word king is used of Yahweh God. It's the very first time he's called king, and it says he's king over all other gods, over all of kingdom. He, he is truly ruling. And so this pattern, God confronts evil, he liberates his people, and he invites them into this alternate kingdom, an alternate community, and it's supposed to live in contrast to the rest of the world. Um, there's, a, there's a whole group of psalms, if you're interested in reading, you can start in like Psalm 93 and read the next eight or so psalms. But there are all these reflections upon God's king, and yet... There's rebellion in the world, and how do we kind of make sense of that? But, but God's king, the world's sure, and you know, he, his, his, his kingdom won't fail, and all that sorts of thing. Um, Psalm 96, 10 through 13 reads this. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound. And all that is in it, that's that creation picture, everything that he has. Let the fields be jubilant, everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before Yahweh, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Coming in judgment... Um, we hear judgment is a bad thing. We're in the West and, you know, we're individual and we're, you know, democracy and that, you know, we, that sort of, we, we read it negatively. The, in the Bible, they read it positively because what's God's judgment? Well, it's taking the people who are oppressing others and putting them down. It's, it's, it's bringing equity. It's bringing justice where there's been perversions of justice. So God's judgment was longed for in the Bible constantly here. 
because there are still little kingdoms in rebellion against God. We're still living among the pharaohs of our world. And what's really interesting is that, you know, the, the, in the Bible, the uh, evaluation that's made over Pharaoh, do you remember what it was that said his heart was hardened? You know, that, that's sort of the, here's what's wrong with him. I mean, Pharaoh's, again, he's the icon of what's jacked up in our world, but, but the official stamp of evaluation is his heart is hard. And then what's so interesting, you get to the prophets, you know what they say about Israel? Your hearts are hard. You've become Pharaoh. What, again, what we realize is there's no difference. God is not uh, nationalistic in the sense of, oh, these people are good and those people are bad. He says everyone's broken. Everyone's messed up. This everyone is Pharaoh. Each one of us. Solomon, actually, in one point, is depicted as Pharaoh. Do you realize that? Um, Solomon, we're told that he's the first Israelite king to institute slave labor. He's the first Israelite king who actually goes back and institutes the uh, horses from Egypt. He amasses wealth and slaves people to build his... He's Pharaoh. Solomon is turning... Now, again, he has his good points as well, for sure, his bright points. But the point is this, that the best, the best of human kingdoms, including yours, including mine, becomes an instrument of evil. Because there's this thing, the ring, that we can't quite destroy on our own. Isaiah says, one of the prophets after the nation is destroyed, Isaiah says that one day Yahweh himself, the true king, will actually come back when this is a time when things are sort of broken and destroyed. And he will return to Zion and restore his kingdom. And again, as we've been talking about, we're seeing a lot of crossover and stuff. Think about this. How, how do these people, this is their background, this is their big narrative. How do people hear Jesus when he shows up and he says, hey, look at me, the kingdom of God is here. How do they hear him? What do they hear him saying? It's a radical claim. He's presenting himself as royalty, as the king. And the first thing he does, he calls out a group of people, 12 that's a powerful symbol. He's claiming to reestablish Israel. Broken down, ten of the tribes are lost, only two are there. He picks out twelve, and he symbolically says, I am reestablishing, reaffirming my covenant to do something miraculous through this particular people for all peoples of the world. And again, same pattern. He confronts evil. We've talked about that. What does he do? He goes around challenging the snake. He's healing people, all the consequences of rebellion. Um, he liberates people. He's, he calls out the twelve. The word church means called out ones. That's what the word church ecclesia means. You're called out to live differently. And he invites them to live under his reign in a way that's totally different from the rest of the world, the rest of community, what people have called the upside down kingdom, a very radically different kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this is Matthew's Matthew's point, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he has, he has Jesus standing up on a mountain. Last guy who did that was Moses, stood up on a mountain. And he delivers truth to the people, and he breaks it up into five sections. There's five sections of the Old Testament. Matthew is very clearly trying to communicate, this is, this is the new Moses. This is the guy who is opening up God's story to all people, and it's this kingdom mission. Um, now, this can be a scary thing. Some people, some people in our world today are claiming the same thing 
that we're trying to bring the rule of God. And it's disastrous, right? Who's that? ISIS. Right? ISIS is claiming that we're going to bring the kingdom of God and some of the consequences of that will be murder. Um, bringing that in the name of Allah. So we are leery, understandably. I'm leery of anyone who'd say, I want to bring the kingdom of God. Why? Because as soon as the ring gets in your hand, uh, you start to bring about your kingdom. So we have to ask the question, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come through Jesus? What did it look like? Because he said, here's the kingdom, guys. But what did it look like? It looked like a leper being healed. It looked like a woman who had, as an outcast because of bleeding issues, being welcomed back in. It looked like a dishonest person in power paying back all the money that they had wrongly taken and defrauded people for. Jesus embodied the kingdom of God. His kingdom was totally different. It was this upside down kingdom. And Jesus' enthronement, and this is, there's, a, there's an irony to the end of the Gospel of John. Read it sometime. What I would suggest is that John is actually presenting, when Jesus walks into sort of you know, the Passion Week, we call it, uh, where he's beaten and he's a, a crown on his head and you're mocked and he's lifted up on a cross. There's irony there because I would suggest that the New Testament authors saw that as, that's his enthronement as king. Crown was put on his head. He's given a scepter in his hand, Old Testament language. A, uh, a robe is put on him. And then he is exalted high, put on a cross. And there's this great parity to what Jesus' kingdom is like. is so different than what everyone else was expecting. Jesus became king and he got fully inaugurated the moment of the cross. Jesus' cross wasn't defeat and the resurrection victory. The cross was his inauguration as king. And the resurrection was God's validation that, yes, he is, in fact, king. Um, I want us to do this. I'm going to I've got a short video that I want you to take a look at. It's a couple minutes and it picks up with this very concept of the kingdom of God. Now, the word gospel means news. It's sort of like I need to tell you about this kingdom thing that's happening. And in the story, it beautifully picks up. When Israel has blown it, Babylon's come in and they've taken off so many people and they're left with the question, what happened to this kingdom of God thing? I thought God was going to do something. Is God still on the throne? Take a look at this. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. 
The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom that needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had. That not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love and then jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom and to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him the king who defeated death with his love One of the things that I mentioned earlier is that this, this, this idea of kingdom or rule goes literally from, from page one to the first paragraph of the very last page. Um, in Revelation chapter 22, 
it, it paints a picture of, of new creation, what it is that God is doing here in this creation. It speaks of up there coming down here. The new Jerusalem has come down, and the, uh, the trees are blossoming in the, the leaves to heal the nations, and, the, and the, the stream is running from the throne of, of the Father and the Lamb, and there's no more curse, and there's uh, no more uh, nighttime, and everything is made right. And then it pictures the servants, humanity. It says the servants are serving God. And then what's so interesting, it says, um, and these servants who are serving God rule and reign for eternity. It's almost like it's like going back to Genesis because he's painting a picture of that. And what was lost there, it's like picking right up from there and saying, that's what our future looks like. God's kingdom is fully here. That's what Jesus was about. Now, we as the church, we are not the kingdom of God. We as the church are a community of people who gather around the person of Jesus as apprentices of his living under his reign and his rule of our lives, becoming this alternate community in a world which still has kingdoms in rebellion. And one of the ways that Jesus said that you remind yourself the kind of kingdom that you're in and that you don't start thinking of something else is he said, I want you to do this because this this was the locus of my mission and what I was about with this new kingdom. It was one of self-sacrifice. It was one of giving. And so I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward in these next few minutes. I'm going to ask them just to pass out the elements to you. Would you hold them in your hand? Um, if you are exploring Jesus and faith and Christianity, uh, you can just let the elements pass right by you. We're glad, we're thrilled that you are here, that, that you're thinking about this. Um, hold on to these elements, and like I said, um, we'll come back together and then just take them in a minute or two.